Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your mercy and grace has been extended to us in such lavish supply that we have been resurrected from the dead. Before we loved you, you loved us and you set your affections upon us. And Christ came, took on flesh, walked among us, prophesied, and then fulfilled in perfect obedience, resisting every temptation, submitting to the wrath that our sin deserved, a crucifixion, a trial, a condemnation, a horrific death, a burial, and then praise be to our God and His resurrecting power, a triumph over death in the grave in resurrection. And then an ascension, arriving with kingdom in hand before His Father. And there now seated, ruling and reigning, commanding the perfect, inscrutable will and directing the affairs of this universe, governing all of history for all of time, seated at the right hand of the Father with every enemy subdued one by one under His feet. And now we, your people, celebrate this morning because the enemy of our sin and the condemnation of our debt, which stood as a record against us, has been submitted to Jesus Christ and is under His feet. And we now join Him in His victory parade, shouting, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for our sin. Glorious and worthy is He of our praise and all of the redeemed. And the elders and creatures that gathered before the throne in glory, even now, and lift up praises that you so deserve, dear Jesus Christ. This morning, as we open your infallible word, your powerful, preserved word, your inscrutable wisdom there contained, I pray that you might give us capacity to understand the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for each one of us. Let us stand in this day of trial on our rock, Jesus Christ, that we might shine against the darkness with proof positive of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ evident in our own confession. And I thank you, Lord, for what you have prepared for us today before time even began and for communion which preaches to us, Lord, the message of the gospel, even as your word declares it to our hearts this morning. Be glorified in our midst. Be glorified in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Matt, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four will be our text this morning, verses fourteen through sixteen. As you're turning there in a moment, I'll ask you if you're able to stand for the reading of God's holy word. The title of today's message from Hebrews is "High Priestly Grip." High Priestly Grip, a reference to the grasp of Christ on His elect, that we see in the terms of that hold that Christ has on us, His people, what we can learn of that assuring and keeping and saving power in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It's truly a condensed passage of Scripture, weighty with truth. So stand with me, if you would, this morning with your Bible open, again to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And let's read these gracious words of life Follow me as I read. 
It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the infallible word of our Lord. You may be seated. Last communion message. In the beginning of June, we focused on chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and the lessons that we learn about our grip on Christ, if you will. And this morning, we will focus on Christ's grip on us. And perhaps in that picture, we have something of a more full-orbed view of the tie we have to Jesus Christ. The last message, again in June, was entitled, Hold Fast. That language comes from the text here, a verse or two previous, or actually in verse 14 it says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There is a charge, there is an exhortation in this hortatory or exhortational or directional or warning language of Hebrews to grip tightly with white-knuckled passion the truth that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that He is our Savior and Lord and to never ever let go of that confession. The times that Hebrews addressed and the people, the church to whom this word was written, this epistle was written, found themselves with every reason in the natural to let go. Even as we ourselves live in a day that is troubled and in times of testing and in trial, And so there are many forces, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that would come up, as it were, and try to pry your grip loose, pry your fingers loose from your hold on your confession to Jesus Christ, His truth, and His Word. This morning we will learn how Christ keeps us, and therefore how we keep Him, and so that grip remains faithful even though the days grow dark. Last week we focused on on our end, how embracing the Christian life means often embracing the paradoxical tensions, that is, the surprising truths described in Hebrews 4. For us, as we read and in recap in verse 4, there is good news, but there is also a fear that ought to attend it. Let us fear, chapter 4, verse 1 tells us, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Reach what? Well, the promise of entering His rest while it still stands. Verse 2 does not leave us with only a sense of terror or concern or sobriety or reverence or awe, but also reminds us that there's a joyful expectation and that the news itself, the gospel itself, is intrinsically worthy of our affections and our rejoicing. It says, for good news came to us, just as to them, that good news, a one galeon, the Greek for glad tidings, of great joy, the message that would make every redeemed heart rejoice in worship forever. So we have in this life, as we hold fast to our confession, this good, joyful news, 
Yet a sense of fear and sobriety and concern that ought to attend our way. So we live in that paradox as we cling to Christ. Second paradox in brief and in review that we covered in last message was that we have this fear in good news, but we also have a reality of today and long afterwards. There is promises that we rest in today, but there are promises that we don't see in our full manifest experience until later on. This has been a reality for the exiled churches. It was represented by ancient Israel, and it's a reality for us as something of a wilderness people as well. It says in verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We have assurance of our salvation today, but we have a promise yet in the future. And so we live in this tension of today and long afterwards. Thirdly, we are commanded, related to this rest, to strive in earnest zeal, a tireless, patient endurance, perseverance, and tenacity is required of us in verse 11. The author tells us, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So there is a striving even as there is a rest, and therein lies yet another paradox. And finally, we have the Word of God, which is a propositional, inarguable truth. The Word of God, as it is described as an implement, is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And in this way, the author describes its penetrating power, revealing the thoughts and intents of the heart, just as a sword in the natural can divide joints and marrow. And then we have this surprising shift in the pronoun in verse 13. It says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. Whose sight? Is he speaking of Christ? Is he speaking of the Word, the sword? The answer to both questions is yes. And so we see that Christ is the living Word. And Christ Himself embodies the Word. Even as John 1, the prologue, tells us the Word was with God. The Word was God. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Before him, the text tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 13, that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so, with these paradoxes and with the sober call to let our judgment be shaped by the reality of the tensions around us and these paradoxes, and thankfully there is a brief time, this is brevity that we're speaking of here, or a brief time where we will cling in this way with tenacious zeal to promises yet in the future, but they will give way because of the purchasing power of Christ's blood, to the manifest rest and glory eternal. And so, as we say, the picture of grasping onto Christ is like a mutual hold. And if I could draw your attention to the pulpit for a moment, you can see how I've grasped my wrists with each hand. There's a hand grasp on this wrist, my other hand on this wrist. Maybe a a better illustration in your mind might be a movie, a perilous action film where right before someone plummets to their death, they're flailing uh, blindly, uh, desperate to be saved from the precipice of a cliff. And in this action film, the rescuer repelling from a helicopter or from a secure position at the last possible moment reaches down and grasps the wrist of the individual who is in dire need of salvation. And then what happens? Well, after the wrist is grasped by the Savior, 
then the one who is saved grasps the wrist of the rescuer. And therein is a double hold, a double hold, one to the other, and then they are pulled to safety from the precipice of destruction. This, I submit to you, is something of a picture of the double hold that we see in the passage here. When our author commands us, let us hold fast our confession. There is a hold we have on Christ, but thankfully it is Him who first grasped us. He, we love Him because He first loved us. And so there is that mutual grasp that well describes the Christian life. Secondly, in this passage, one more image I'd like to give you. That first illustration, that double hold, gives us something of the content that I'd like to summarize or give you by way of summary of, of Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. But a second illustration to help us realize how these verses that we're contemplating this morning, 14 through 16, how they deliver that message. Yesterday, I was charged with a tax task over at the beach of blowing up a floating island with a pool and, you know, a raft and a reclining area. And so for several minutes, say 15, I was there with my air compressor, faithfully doing my diligence to help the family blow up this, this big floating island. As I got finished with it, I realized it was much bigger than I first imagined. And I was joking with a relative that you could rescue three generations of Cuban refugees on this thing. And so we finally got it all set up out there. And later on in the day, I noticed the box in which it was originally contained. I guarantee it'll never go in that box again. That box is kind of like a tent maybe you unpack. It was about 24 inches square. Meanwhile, after this you know, whole floating deal is blown up, it's you know, all of 12 feet by, by 10 or something like that. So in the same way, the compressed theology in Hebrews 4 verses 14 through 16 blows up when we view it in context. And so often the Word of God is like this. At first glance, you, all, you see, all you may see is a 24-inch cardboard box as it were. But as you begin to unpack the saturated truth inside certain segments of the Word of God, all in fact, what you will find is that the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, as you diligently and correctly study the Word of God, especially with the help of the context, begins to blow up what is therein contained, and you see a fuller picture of what is described. So in this way, in Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16, we have, if you will, vacuum-packed theology, super-compressed theology. And this is a handy way of summarizing and also transitioning and also establishing a theme in Hebrews, the way the author packs in these truths. So like an an inflatable raft then delivered in a 24-inch box, the context of Hebrews, and indeed I submit all of redemptive history and revelation pumps air into these concepts and allows us to appreciate them in full. And so here's a heading for you this morning as we attempt to access the vacuum-packed theology of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let us note this morning four aspects of Christ's priesthood, Christ's high priesthood compressed in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, four aspects, delineated 
by help, hopefully by four words this morning. Number four, access. That is access to the presence of God. Secondly, essence. That is the essence of Christ Himself. Thirdly, aspect of Christ's high priesthood. Advocate. That is intercessor. One who goes between. Or one who advocates, represents us on our behalf, namely Christ to us. And fourthly, the effect of these three things. The effect of Christ gaining access to the presence of God for us. The effect of His essence, who He truly is in the fullness of His dual nature. Thirdly, the advocacy, His intercessory role. How does that affect us? That will be the fourth aspect of compressed truth of Christ's high priesthood that we will endeavor to unpack and to view in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 this morning. I'd like to read our text again before I begin with point number one, access, because it's short and it is so dense. Verse 14, follow along with me as I read again these three short yet dense verses. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This passage summarizes some concepts. There's also a shift in the text, and this will establish the theme all the way through chapter 10, namely the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. And also it is a central theme in Hebrews, the office of Christ as our high priest. First of all, when we think of priest, let us consider access this morning. Access to, as Hughes put it, the commentator I was reading this week, just a very insightful and saturated phrase, access to the presence of God, but not just the presence of God, but the presence chamber, as it were. Turn with me to a cross-reference to help us understand this in Leviticus 16, if you would. While you're turning there, let me give you a brief overview of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant, temple and tabernacle worship, and some of what it entailed. And the Old Covenant, as God's truth and revelation was becoming known in greater and greater blossoming detail to the people of God, God chose to incrementally reveal it through certain schemes and systems, liturgy, worship practices. And one of them, and chief among them, I would say, is the sacrificial system of old that had as a geographic and even architectural center tabernacle worship, and then, of course, temple worship. At the tabernacle, or at the time when that tent of meeting was given, was granted to the people as a means to behold, to see, and to learn aspects of God's presence and holiness and their relationship to Him, certain things became quite clear. And one of those things, indeed, was that the presence of God was a highly guarded environment that was not, free, that was not a free-for-all. The presence of God had very specific terms and conditions and stipulations before you or I could appreciate it. 
We can understand this to be the case when we rewind our own history, the history of humanity, all the way back to Genesis 3. We have disqualified ourselves from the presence of God inasmuch as we are sinners. Man walked with God in the cool of the garden, but man forever since has had a flaming sword of judgment standing between him and, as it were, the presence or the chamber, the presence chamber of God's dwelling because we are now wretched, wicked, disqualified. We indeed are sinners. Is there any way, we ask ourselves, and this is the question of all redemptive history, is there any way that a sinner and a holy God can be reconciled? Yes, the gospel proclaims and champions from Genesis 3.15 forward. Yes, indeed. And even the tabernacle and the institution of the worship order of the Old Covenant says yes, indeed. And it is in this context that we learn exactly how this reconciliation will unfold. And so even in, as I say, the spatial, that is the, uh, the, the space or the area that was reserved symbolically for God's presence in the tabernacle and in the architectural design of this worship scheme, we have typology. And in this worship is a symbol of the terms and conditions of God's favor. I would call to your attention because it's a psalm we've recently studied. Number 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Later in the psalm it says, in, or within her citadels, God has made himself known. The author in, the, exhorts the reader and the singer to later to go around her citadels, consider well her ramparts, and find that in Zion, in Jerusalem, is safety, is justice, is mercy. And so in this picture, in Psalm 48, we have some of this architectural and spatial typology. The city of God, Mount Zion, tabernacle, temple worship, fortress, citadel, a place of God's favor. I submit to you this place of God's favor represents certain stipulations, terms and conditions of reconciliation. Now, if you're with me in Leviticus 16... This forms the basis of the fulfillment of Christ in the book of Hebrews, but it helps us to understand. It says in Leviticus 16:1, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near, notice that language, drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. So you notice the presence chamber is highly exclusive and reserved environment. And there's instructions so that others may not die by worshiping wrongly. We see here terms and conditions laid out. God tells Moses to tell Aaron, his brother, who was anointed as high priest at this time, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, and in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. 
and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Verse 5. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. And one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sign offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for all his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the lot of Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. That's a brief overview of the liturgy, of temple worship, of tabernacle uh, protocol that was given to Moses to give to the priests at that time to demonstrate to us that access into the holy presence of God is an exclusive environment, environment, highly guarded, and reserved only for those who have been washed, even as Aaron himself was cleansed, who have raiment, that is clothing, representing the righteousness of Christ, draping their form, who have provided a sacrifice, an atonement for sin, Without shedding of blood, after all, there is no remission of sins. And also in the context, there is the consequences of avoiding or malfeasance, not paying attention to these terms and conditions. You see, this instruction came on the heels of two men, the sons of Aaron, Nahab and Abihu, uh, Nadab and Abihu, who were killed instantly because they offered to the Lord unauthorized fire. Let me submit to you that without a high priest to access the presence chamber of God before us, if we go in to that presence, if we charge forward in brash confidence without a sacrifice for our sins, without cleansing that Christ's blood alone can bring, what will happen? We will, despite our best efforts, be offering nothing more than unauthorized fire, and we will be struck dead in hell itself. You see the picture? This is the shadow of what Hebrews identifies in Christ as the substance. Access to the presence of God comes at a high price, a sacrificial price. It requires the office of a priest And it is not a free-for-all that anyone on their own terms can just enter willy-nilly, but only those who follow the high priest. Only those who have, one, a representative who intercedes on their behalf. Only those who pay heed to the Word of God. And it convicts their heart to know that that place of reconciliation with God is reserved for the blood-bought in Jesus Christ. Christ alone, and He is our High Priest. And only in Him is all of the protocol fulfilled for approaching the holiness of God. That's the shadow that we see in the Old. Hebrews again identifies 
that the substance is Jesus Christ. Moving back to the context of our condensed section, as Hebrews begins to expound and to expand on this idea of the high priesthood of Jesus, we turn to chapter 10 and we read the following. Turn with me to 10.5 in the book of Hebrews. Our author records, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these, in parentheses, are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first order to establish the second. And then in verse 10, And that will, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Notice again the comparison and fulfillment of the old priestly order to the high priesthood of Christ. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool. Again, reference to Psalm 110. 14, for by a single offering, he, Jesus Christ, our high priest, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is the high priestly grip of Jesus Christ who gained access to the holy presence of God for all who trust in Him as their atoning sacrifice and their high priest. Christ is the substance. Where did Christ go representing the presence chamber? Here it's clear that He sat down at the right hand of God. This again is referred to at the very opening of this book. In this glorious prologue and language in chapter 1, verse 3, it says of Christ, our author records, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He, again, Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The language and the implication is finality, conclusion, ruling, reigning, kingdom, authority, a throne, and and closure, and the completed work of redemption. In verse 4, chapter 1, again, Christ then, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. Christ is the great high priest. And one aspect of his priesthood clear as we unpack the compressed theology of Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is that he, in his high priestly office, has gained access for us into the guarded, exclusive, 
presence of the reconciliation, favor, and grace of God. Praise His holy name and His holy name alone. Because our high priest, the great high priest, the once for all sacrifice, the mediator between God and man, has gained access for us, for us, not just into the holy place, not just into the holy of holies of old, not Jerusalem, not Samaria, no spatial location on this earth, but where? Into the forever abiding, glorious presence of God, even the rest that Hebrews chapter 4 prophesies. As you recall that term over and again, promise of our future. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands. Entering where? That is, access to the utmost of our salvation. The reconciliation with God. The holy presence and fellowship with the same. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That was the judgment language for those who did not embrace the priesthood of old, the sacrifices of old in verse 3, but wandered in their rebellion. But there are others, there were a few, there were remnant who heard his voice and of them they could cling to the promises that David spoke so long afterward. Today in verse 7, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. How do we strive and what is that rest? We strive by remembering the mutual grip of Christ, our high priest. Remember Jesus Christ, your advocate, your intercessor, and his finished work on Calvary. And in so doing, you cling to the one who will usher you according to his promises from this veil of tears into the utmost of salvation, into glory, into the presence chamber eternal of God's blessing, grace, and favor for all and each of his elect. Glory to his name. Secondly, this morning, a second aspect of Christ's high priesthood that is compressed in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, but expanded in the rest of the context, and that is essence, the essence of Christ Himself, that is. Christ, as second person of the Trinity, is Son of God and Jesus, Son of Mary and Joseph, as it were. In 4.14, we have two references to Christ in passing, but I submit to you there is much theologically packed into these terms, and we see it in the greater context. Again, 14, since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Pausing there to consider that the author uses two references to Christ. In fact, three if we see his, uh, if we count the great high priest as a reference as well. But specific, more specifically, he, call, he refers to Christ as Jesus and the Son of God. No doubt he has in mind the dual nature or the two natures of Christ. Christ is indeed fully God and fully man. This is what we call in theology the hypostatic union, a fancy word for the essence, the nature, the substance, the actuality, 
What is Christ? Well, Christ is God, and He is man. And thankfully so, because without such a union, there would be no salvation. The Word of God is clear. Turn with me briefly to a reference to this this theological truth that Paul declares in worshipful tones in Philippians chapter 2. Aaron read this in worship this morning. This passage has come to be known in church history as the hymn to Christ, or in Latin, the Carmen Christi. And here, as we've referenced this passage, by the way, I'd encourage us all to memorize this. It will be absolutely essential doctrine, even more as the days grow darker. And it is to the truths such as this that the author of Hebrews appeals when the days are so dark. Ephesians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now we are going to learn something of the essence of Christ. His hypostatic union indeed. Verse 6. Who, that is Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We've remarked before that there are three aspects of the essence of Christ or Christology evident in this passage. There is the pre-incarnate glory. That is the divinity, the essence of Christ as God that He has eternally had before He was the incarnate Son. And this is what the text refers to as the form of God. The form of God, that pre-incarnate glory that Christ uh, in His humility added to with His uh, nature, His human nature, when He came in the flesh. In the Greek, the word for form of God and form of man, as we see it later in the text, is the same, morphe, which doesn't mean to transform uh, as, as you might think, but instead it means that the essence or the attributes and the essence are a one-to-one correlation. If something is in the form of God, that means that everything emanating as an attribute of His being is consistent with His nature. Thus, to be in the form of God is to be God. And later as we read, says he made himself in verse 7, nothing to take the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so here we have the morphe of a servant, which is born the likeness of men. So we have Christ the divine, and we have Christ the man. Christ as God, and Christ human. And verse 8, and being found in human form, there it is, morphe, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This name is not only preeminent, but it is absolutely unique. There is and will only ever be one Christ. Only one fully God, fully man. Only one perfect mediator. Only one great high priest. Only one Christ who could satisfy these conditions. Highly specific, absolutely essential to our faith. Jesus, Son of Man. Jesus, Son of God. As we listen to a message like this, and we hear the intricacy, and yes, in some degree, the complexity of the theology that I mentioned to you is compressed and vacuum-packed in this passage. 
we might think to ourselves, well, that's heady stuff for seminary students. It is not. It is not. The technical, if you will, or the essential and precise truths about the Trinity are essential. The church of Jesus Christ, according to the author of Hebrews, will not stand in the day of adversity and in the time of need if they do not know what they believe. In the rest of the context of Hebrews, some have referred to these messages or to the message and to these themes and theology that is preached and taught there as some of the most intricate, precise, and difficult to comprehend in all of Scripture. Yet this book was written for a church in jeopardy. And later on in Hebrews 5 it says, it is for want of careful attention to precise truth that these people are still feeding on milk and have not entertained a diet of solid food. And they're in danger of becoming apostate and falling away. Church, hear me. In this dark day, where every aspect of your confession to Christ will be challenged by popular culture, and increasingly so, you must hear, love, commit to your intellectual understanding, and even more so to your heart's affections, the beautiful, precise truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the nature of Christ Himself. As I endeavor to do this and to teach you, I pray that you would pray for me for a gifting to deliver. I pray that you would pray for all of us for hearts to be soft, ears to be open, and eyes to see, because certainly the days are dark. As we read in our text that we find grace in Christ to help in time of need, there is content indeed to that grace. The content to the grace which helps in time of need for the church is the essence of who Christ is. And this is reiterated over and again in all of Holy Writ, but, at, but especially in the book of Hebrews. The incarnation is absolutely necessary to salvation, and our understanding and appreciation of it is necessary that we might stand. As we see in the text, back uh, just a couple chapters in chapter 2, just one illustration of this truth. It says, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, speaking of Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I would submit to you that we cannot understand that text I just read without understanding the incarnation of Christ. Just like we share in flesh and blood, He, Christ Himself, likewise partook of the same things. 
Jesus Christ indeed is referred to in this sense then as our brothers, as our brother. We have a familial relationship with the Godhead because Christ took on flesh. How do we appreciate the beauty and the glory of our relationship with God? Popular, personal, language indeed. We do so in understanding the depth and the beauty, the exclusivity and the precision of what is implied there. Christ became man and only, and in so doing, He provided the only way of salvation, as we see in the context, to satisfy the terms and conditions of salvation, to be both our sacrifice and our high priest. Secondly, in the essence of Christ that we see unpacked in the surrounding text, but there in compressed form in Hebrews 4, not only do we find uh, reference to the dual nature of Christ, but also there is reference to Christ as the primary agent of revelation. And this is a reminder of our previous message. Rewind a few verses, Hebrews 4, 11, uh, 12, that is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In speaking in this way, in both personal and implement language, the author is describing the essence of Christ as, as the Greek would have it, logos or logos, the word, the declared truth of God. We mentioned the prologue of John where Christ is identified with the word. The message further then in our passage this morning is, let us hold fast our confession. What is confession? Well, that is a word that all who are joined together in unity confess the same word. It is a point of unity. It is a touchstone in their profession, in their belief, where the message, the hearing, and faith come together. That is gospel terms right there. Message, the logos, hearing, ears to hear, and then faith mixed with that hearing. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. When that is mixed together and then applied in our life in word and deed, it becomes a confession, a homologia, homologia, or something along those lines, which in the Greek, uh, homo meaning the same, and logio, logia meaning word. So we confess the same word. This, you can see, is related to logos. Remember, for the word of God, that is the logos of God, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So this word then, that is Christ, and is the inarguable truth, becomes the confession. What we agree on as a people, that is the binding distinctive of our fellowship. Thus, we must affirm that Jesus Christ is the primary agent of truth and of revelation. And when we do, the basis of our unity will be strong, unwavering, and secure, even in the time of need or in trial and in testing. 
In this way, when we confess Christ, that same word spoken, confessed among us in unison, we confess that Christ is, as we said, divine and human, personal and propitiatory. The word of God, the revelation of God is not merely words on a page, but it is a person. It is a truth, but it's not only a proposition. It is also personal and it is also salvific. It propitiates, it makes a sacrifice for our sins. This is revelation. When the Bible speaks of the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, us confessing that word, the word that is sharper, living, active, like a two-edged sword, a word from which no creature is hidden from his sight, but the eyes of him see all. The Bible is speaking of revelation in this sense. God making himself known to man, and he's doing it in words, yes, on a page, but he's doing it through the word Christ, who is God, who is human, who is personal. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he is our high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the one that has stooped to man. And in this way, God, in his word and in his revelation through Christ, has condescended to us. That means God has come to us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, the condescended one, God with us has come. He is divine, he is human, he is personal, he is our high priest and sacrifice. In this way and in this understanding, we have the word of God. The word of God is essentially and inextricably linked to Christ, his nature and his work and the person that he is and indeed the nature of the Godhead himself. This is the word of God. Living, you see, active, yes, an omniscient judge, one in whom we find safety, security, assurance, salvation, the Word of God, God coming to us. This, brothers and sisters, is so important. Certainly it's hard to explain because our minds are short-sighted. We must trust the Holy Spirit to awaken our eyes to understanding. But as He quickens a desire to love and appreciate the Word of God, I sense that floodgates in our hearts, according to the, po- the promises of Scripture, will indeed open up and an inrush of God's truth will fill us with such joy as we consider the personal and active word of God for us as his people. This knowledge will insulate us against the cheap yet deceptive counterfeits. There are authority claims this world over. Our culture is awash with heresy and with error. And in order to be firmly rooted and grounded and defended against them, we must understand Christ as the primary agent of revelation. When we understand even as the, how the Bible was delivered to us, we can see that God preserved His Word in such a way that He did it orally through many human secondary agents to write it down. He did it across languages and culture He preserved His Word even as it practically appears on these pages before us to show us that its essence cannot be reduced to anything less than the living, powerful, personal Jesus Christ, the Logos in the flesh. 
The Word of God is not specific to a culture. It's not specific to a creature. It cannot be reduced in its essence to a language, to an institution, to an era, or a single human author, or even multiple human authors. The Word of God is itself a living, active, powerful, inarguable judge, jury, prosecutor, and praise the Lord, propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. This is certainly a headful of truth and revelation, yet it should sound to us with hearts trained to love the things of God like sweet honey for the appetite of our redeemed soul. Because the essence of Christ packed into Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 explodes in revelatory glory in the rest of Hebrews and all of Scripture. I beg you, saturate your affections and intellect in the sum of its truths over and over again so that we might stand and hold fast our confession, hold fast to our Jesus Christ, our high priest. Thirdly, this morning, and more briefly, let's consider Christ our advocate. Christ our advocate is described succinctly in this passage in verse 15. Here we see an aspect of Christ's priesthood when we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You may have heard a variety of explanations and interpretations of this passage. I would submit to you the more humanistic ones would propose to you that Jesus, in taking on human flesh and coming to earth, was kind of merely expressing solidarity with us. You know, here we are down on this earth saying to God with our t-shirt and blaze, you know, I guess you had to be there. So in order that it couldn't be said, Christ came to earth so that he might know what it's like to be us. A false interpretation I submit to you. When we read in this passage that Christ came to sympathize with our weaknesses, we do not presume that he came to learn something the omniscient God had not forever known already. Heresy, indeed, heresy, to suggest such a thing. Why did he come? He came in order that he might intercede, advocate on our behalf. The first Adam failed. Adam was called to obey the Lord. And in so doing, the promise of life was offered to him. You may eat of every tree in the garden, save this one, Adam. Adam failed. That test did not stand the temptation. That probation period was an abysmal failure and plunged into depravity and sin the whole human race. He is our representative, blew it for us all. But there would arise, as the scriptures say, according to Romans, a second Adam. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he would come and he himself would subject himself in his humiliation to probation, to testing. And the command and the law of God would be delivered to him. And though temptation would assail him in every way it has the human race, and more if it could be said, our second Adam never failed. He kept the law to the jot and tittle perfectly. And that righteousness, according to the original covenant with Adam, 
was fulfilled in Christ. He came, he sympathized with our weaknesses, joined in our experience. He joined in the experience of our own testing, not so he could know something he didn't already, but instead so that he could pass the test that we failed. Now, when we are born again, when our heart is regenerated, there is a great exchange. And that righteousness that Christ earned, that Adam failed, is transmitted to us. It is imputed to us. It is like the washing of Aaron's body and the clothing of white raiment that gave him the ability to fulfill the terms, symbolically, of access to the presence, the presence chamber of God Almighty. That future or that symbol would be fulfilled perfectly in the future and Christ's imputed righteousness and those white robes drench us in His blood and provide us access through our high priest into the presence chamber of God. Why? Because He passed the test. His righteousness is credited to our account and now He is our advocate, ever lives and intercedes for us. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 We read words to this effect as we have already considered that surely it is not the angels he helps in verse 16, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Later on in Hebrews 7, former priests, it says in verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever Consequently, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is our advocate, always interceding, pleading before the throne of God's righteousness to credit his law keeping, if you are in Christ today, to your account. This is our high priest's great work. It is His mediatorial intervention. Finally, this morning, the fourth aspect in closing an application of Christ's high priesthood compressed into these verses, that is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, is its application and its effect on us. When we understand what I have just delivered to you in deeper, more measurable ways in heart and head, what might we expect? Well, indeed, promises Three, to be exact. First, it says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. The effect of considering Christ our high priest will be a loyalty, an orthodoxy, a faithfulness, a steadfastness, a holding fast of our confession. You need not fear falling away if you fear your great high priest. Verse 16 closes this passage by saying, in several different ways, the glorious effect of Christ our high priest and the consideration of the truths upon us as people. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And notice the link. Since then we have a great high priest. What is the effect? Let us hold fast our confession. And later, since again, we have a high priest, not who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in with every respect tempted as we 
Yet without sin, let us again then hold or with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. There is, as we consider the work of Christ, in that truth, an inspirational force motivating and moving, imbuing indeed, our own faithfulness, our own confession. And you can bet there are warring factions to change your mind. And this again, by application, is why it is so important that we consider Jesus Christ our high priest and the truths of the Word of God because vying for the inspirational force that is influenced to change our confession is the spirit of this age, the zeitgeist of this culture who would distract us by false truth, claims to truth and authority claims. Things like naturalistic sciences, scientism indeed, I submit to you, that denies the supernatural and says the only thing real that we can know for sure is observable in our senses. Since we cannot experience Christ risen from the dead with our two eyes, this would tell us that we have no ground for our confession. That is not true. And we hold on to the truth and contradistinction from this pagan claim, this secular claim, when we remember that our great high priest passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was resurrected, according to 1 Corinthians 15, in time, his literal human feet walked this earth, his literal frame was crucified in history, in time, on a cross, he rose from the dead, and he now reigns forever before the right hand of our Father. That is our Christ, that is our high priest, and any denial we reject when we hold to him and to him alone. We reject, in, in addition, the humanistic progressivism that says ethics is up for judicial review. We reject the licentiousness of our culture that wants to make way for every gross and aberrant expression of our desires as if that is intrinsic to our design, design and what it means to be human. Some of us might have woken up to our Facebook feed or our email inbox to a photograph of the White House, a position of power, an altar to a pagan deity erected on a hill in this land on a high place that says, we establish law according to our self-contained authoritative fiat awash with the colors of the rainbow. Let me tell you the kind of perversion that is elevated to a place of prominence in this land right now. This government that we serve under has co-opted the symbols of God's redemption and has turned them into an association with the pagan sin that brought the flood to this world in the first place. You cannot do that and go unjudged. You cannot do that and not receive an indictment from heaven. Now this is the culture that we live in. How can we stand when the pressure on every side is to see the rainbow associated with something God says is aberrant and against His creative authority and order? How can we do that when on every side the symbols of our very Christianity are co-opted by the enemies of our souls? The same way the church, the time the book of Hebrews was written, did it. They clung fast to their high priest, Jesus Christ, They remembered more real than the ephemera of an hour 
than a false authority claim or a high idolatrous place in this land. More secure than any of those aberrant philosophies was the fact that Christ, the Logos, had come in the flesh and was resurrected from the grave. And if he stands seated, if he sits, excuse me, at the right hand of the Father, should we not, should we not be convinced to the core of our being that every idol... And every enemy will be placed under his footstool, even if we have to die confessing that? Absolutely, it will. History has shown us this. The Word has shown us this. And so will the future as every one of God's designs and will come to pass in lockstep with his eternal decree. This is how we stand, church. This is how we stand when the entertainment media tells us otherwise. This is how we stand when relativistic philosophies deny the eternal, immutable, authoritative, transcendent law of God. And this is how we stand against countercultural fatigue. And perhaps this is what hit me the strongest this week. You know, sometimes you just grow weary in a dark culture. It is tiring to be so different all the time. The Word of God describes you and me as aliens and strangers in a strange land, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart not to mix and mingle and so dilute the truth with this world, but indeed to stand apart, to salt this earth and shine as light. But when you attend a festival like my family and I did yesterday, ostensibly to celebrate the independence of this nation, and it is rife with pagan songs, and as I listened to them, I found myself at war. There was a part of me that wanted to dance a little bit, and there was a part of me that recognized the filth of what I heard. Each song was a celebration of sin, virtually every one. Idolatrous loves and affections, celebrating as the apex of human existence, letting it all go and leaving the prudish ethics of the word behind and letting yourself feel free to explore the sin and the licentiousness and the sin that our culture offers us today as really arriving, partying and having fun. And last night as I listened and as I saw the fireworks explode over the horizon, I realized that I could very easily become the victim of counterculture fatigue, just growing weary and well-doing. Let me say personally, on behalf of myself individually and my family, thank you for coming here today. Because in this assembly, we have a unified confession and we have a fellowship that will insulate us against cultural fatigue. Do you remember Hebrews 3.13? It tells us, you and me, Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And may I add, by way of application, that none of you be the victim of countercultural fatigue. Thank you for coming here. Hopefully that illustration communicates to you a little bit of the value of our fellowship here. As the days grow darker, as the flags of what once stood for biblical values are replaced with cultural perversions. Let us stand strong. Let us stand together. Let us come excited to celebrate our high priest's finished work on Calvary. And in so doing, we will see the effect 
of Christ's high priesthood strengthening you against any and every enemy. doesn't matter even if they take your very life. Finally, as we transition to communion, consider the effect of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ most substantially in this text as the mercy and grace that we confidently have to approach the throne of God. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today, brothers and sisters, as is every day, this side of glory, this side of the rest that is promised us, is a time of great need. And so throne of grace, remember, they are mutually inclusive concepts only for the believer because in Christ's broken body and in His shed blood, justice and mercy are satisfied. And so the terms of entrance into the holy place of God, into His presence chamber, if you will, are open for us because our sins have been punished on the cross. And so now we can boldly approach the throne of grace because we have found in our Lord, in our high priest, mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel truth portrayed for us in the elements of communion this morning. It is because of the work of Jesus Christ On that propitiatory cross, that means the cross that absorbed the wrath. That means Christ who absorbed the wrath on that cruel implement of crucifixion and torture. He absorbed the wrath our sin deserved. That is, Jesus our Lord, Jesus our Master, our Kurios, our sacrifice, our great High Priest. I beg you to remember that this morning. As we take the communion elements, let us transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that in the presence of our enemies, as it were, you have spread a table before us. And that table is the broken body and the shed blood of Christ our Lord. It represents today this service to our senses, the gospel. It preaches us To us, the truth that Christ is our high priest. I pray, Lord, that the effect of this message and considering these words and communion today would write on the table of our hearts the truth compressed in Hebrews 4 that Christ is our Lord, our Savior, our sacrifice, our priest, our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.